I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The problem that I historically have identified is I don't want to be known for making organic wine. I want to be known for making good Pinot Noir and good Chardonnay. And I think that people can, historically, people can sometimes get confused that what you're selling is the process, not the products. And that's not what I'm looking to achieve. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Rollo Crittenden is the jack of all trades for Crittenden wines in the Mornington Peninsula. General manager, winemaker and vineyard manager, I can't imagine he has a lot of free time. But Rollo is a family man at heart and today he's here to tell me how he manages to do it all. Hi Rollo, thanks for joining me. Hi Shante, thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to have you on because I literally get excited just thinking about some of your wines. So it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and I can finally ask the questions that I've been dying to ask. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat. I want to take you right back and, and get a little bit of a understanding of where it all started for you. Now, your family was involved in wine. Did you have a, a first memory when you ever kind of, you know, understood that wine was this kind of tangible thing? Um, look, I think, um, yeah, being second generation, but my, my parents actually weren't in the wine industry originally. So, they were in the horticultural industry. They, um, they actually owned a couple of nurseries. And so, I think my they bought the property in 1982. And so, I can remember the very start. Um, so, going back to when I was about six years old, and I've just uh, given away my age there. And, um, and it was just, a, I guess, a, a progression from there you know I just loved it was a greenfield site that they bought and so the planting of the vineyard putting in the lake the building of the winery and it it just evolved and I guess it's still evolving and so I don't think there was sort of one defining moment but certainly one of my greatest memories was we um during vintage we we would always have some internationals working or some some people from around Australia and mum would cook dinner for everyone every night and so just some of the discussions around the table and and the wines that were um enjoyed over those meals and and it's sort of really opened my my eyes up to the to the the great wine wine world that we we have so yeah I think that was probably I guess the driving force for me to get into the industry in many ways yeah so I suppose you know having so different accents around around the table would always be very intriguing to a young child I imagine Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I, there was, you know, we've had a myriad of, you know, it was from French, Italians, um, we've had Americans working and they were always young and excited to be, you know, travelling the world. You know, this was when I was in my teens, so very, um, I guess, impressionable age. And, um, and yeah, it was, and, and just to sort of hear their stories, which were always, had a theme, but always quite unique. Uh, and it just made me want to sort of get to that age where I could sort of jump on a plane and start travelling the world and, and, and work working in other people's wineries and experiencing those, uh, those, those things for myself. Awesome. Well, travel the world you did. You studied winemaking at Charles Sturt University. Was that straight out of school? It was, yes. Yeah, I started full-time and then after about six months realised that I didn't really want to live in Wagga. No offence to Wagga, but um, <laughs> nice city. But, yeah, when you're uh, 18 and, and have just left school, it probably wasn't the place that I wanted to be spending the, the next sort of four years. So, I converted to uh, distance education and started to work in the family winery at the same time as well as doing overseas vintages too, um, yeah, which was which was a great opportunity. 
Wow. Yeah, that's well it's impressive to to be able to to study, like you said, abroad and and also be traveling and 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 working at the same time. You traveled over to California, Oregon, Italy, and then back to the Hunter. What did you learn in your travels? Um, well, I learned a lot. I mean, I, I learned, um, uh, I guess, much of my seller skills and winery skills I, I learned back here at the family winery because at that time we actually were employing a, a winemaker who was a, a guy um, called um, Arthur O'Connor and he'd sort of had some really big winery experience and so he was able to teach me some fantastic seller skills which have really sort of helped me on my way. And then beyond that, you know, travelling overseas, I think it was just really it opened up my my eyes to, to the different varieties around the world. You know, I, I loved working in Italy with Nebbiolo. I think that, that was just probably one of the greatest experiences of my career. Um, you know, and then, of course, um, spending time at a place like Obon Climat in, uh, in California, working with Pinot Noir and, and you know, the formidable character that's Jim Clendenin, who passed away recently. But, um, but that was just such a great experience. So beyond just spending time in the winery, it was also the, you know, the great dining experiences and the, the people that you meet in, in other wineries and the different ideas and, you know, it's just such a, um, an, enthusiastic, an enthusiastic industry that there's always such a great sharing of ideas, which was fantastic for, for me at that age. Yeah, I mean, you absorb so much and you're so curious at, at, in your teenage years and, yeah, all new experiences are usually good experiences. Yeah, you you're not then, jaded. <laughs> not, yeah, well, yes, yeah. sadly, not yet, hopefully. Yep. Um, you then did a vintage as well in the Hunter. What were your impressions of the Hunter Valley when you are working there? That was um, that was really interesting. You know, I, I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula um, producing cool climate wines. We're in a family that was producing cool climate wines, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot. And I had no concept of what it would be like, firstly, the size of the hunter, and especially compared to the Mornington Peninsula back, you know, going back 20 plus years. And then in addition to that, the, um, I think the, you know, the warmth over the, the harvest time, you know, we were picking grapes in early February and it was, and it was, still so warm but then just to understand this variety semillon and uh and how age worthy it is and the acid and and you know that you're making these fantastic wines of 10 percent alcohol and you know I, I think that to me that was you know just added yet another sort of you know great sort of um i guess interest to my um to my experiences so yeah it was it was just fantastic yeah, such different varieties to, that that you work with down in Mornington. When you decided to have that pool, and well, not decided on it, I'm sure there was a natural pool back home. Um, you were head winemaker at Dramana Estate in Mornington. Why why go to somewhere else to be head winemaker rather than back to the family farm? Oh, that's a bit of a convoluted story, which probably needs a bit of explanation. But my family actually started Dramana Estate and then sold it. Um, not as not the property, but the brand. So the brand sort of moved to another site. Uh, so mm-hmm. I went with it and and stayed on as the winemaker there for a while. And then my family sort of reestablished at the original site, which which uh, under the brand of Crittenden. And so yeah, when it, when there was there was sort of a time that I thought, well, I, I probably should be doing this back with the family business. So that's when I moved back from from Dramana Estate to the family 
site, which was the original Dramana site. It's a bit convoluted. But, mm. yeah. No, that's really interesting. I thought maybe you just went somewhere else to just, you know, make all your mistakes there rather than <laughs> yeah, the family. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <Mistakes>. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I did that there. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, but it was the family business. So, then it was time to move. Correct. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the business that your that your parents started, like you said, they were, you know, that wasn't really their background. So, tell me about how they kind of set that up. Yeah. So, so dad in particular, um, he had that horticultural background um, and he also had a great love of wine. I think that he had a, a few friends from various sort of um, social groups that were bringing some wines in, uh, in the sort of 70s. And he um, he became really interested and, and developed a great love of wine. And he was never, he's always been a bit on entrepreneurial and always sort of been self-employed. So, he's decided, you know, I want to go and plant a, a vineyard and, 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 and grow some grapes and make wine and, and really combine his passions. And so, he actually started to look in Tasmania and he went down there and started sort of looking at blocks of land and and um, and came back and said to mum, yep, this is it. This is what I want to do. We're going to move to Tasmania and plant a vineyard and uh, grow grapes and make wine. And, and so, mum said, well, enjoy yourself down there and be sure to stop in when you come back to visit us occasionally. So, so, um, he, uh, he then thought, well, I'm living on the Mornington Peninsula. I think there's a couple of producers around here. And, I, and so, he reached out to Nat White from Main Ridge Estate and, and uh, LG Park and started to develop a theory that he could probably grow grapes here. And, and so, that, I guess, was the beginning. I uh, found a plot of land and, and bought it back in 1981 and, and planted the vineyard in 1982. And, and I don't think he's looked back since. You know, it's just been that passion for him. So, yeah, it's been a, a nice, um, I guess, progress for him to, to mm. establish this. Well, I'm glad that he did. I mean, Mornington, like you said, is an amazing place to grow grapes, but because it is like you know, out on a precipice, it is a little bit further removed. That's got to have its challenges, especially in those early days, like you said, of not having, you know, a lot of wineries established and, and you know, the main city being that little bit further away. Do you, do you remember them talking about challenges like that? I think um, certainly I feel that the Mornington Peninsula in the early days um, they had, or well, people like my dad and the other early producers had a lot of work to do to establish the name, you know, because now we think about Mornington Peninsula being synonymous with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. And, um, and I think in that regard, the brand Mornington Peninsula itself is very strong in relation to wine. But back then, of course, that wasn't the case. So, I think that that was one thing that dad knew he had to work hard to achieve was to um, get that name out there and, and certainly the, the family um, winery at the time. And so, he he spent a lot of time traveling. You know, he would be always be doing trade shows and going over to the UK and and traveling into state. And, and um, yeah, he really fought hard to, to, to I guess, put the spotlight on the region uh, and and was very effective at doing it too. Well, I mean, I just think about, yeah, how how much harder it would have been back in those days and you just think how grateful that they did have such a passion for it and, and decide to kind of keep going. Um, if you don't mind me asking, Margaret, your late mother, sounded like a force of a woman. Do you mind telling me a little bit about her legacy? Yeah, so she she um, she absolutely was. She was um, she was an only child, which I think um, probably was uh, part of the makeup of her tenacity. She um, so she her background was actually nursing and and pathology, and and then she um, when we. 
uh, planted the vineyard and and built the house here and started living here. And I think she just decided, well, I, I want to contribute. And so she was a fantastic cook. And uh, so she decided to um, put uh, a restaurant on the site, with its, which was sort of a restaurant salador or probably more of a cafe at the time, uh, which was the first uh, by a long shot of the um, the sort of salador restaurant um, operations down here. And it was hugely successful. You know, visitation was great and I think people really enjoyed it. Her, I didn't think her business acumen was as good as her ability to cook and to, to run the, the restaurant in that, um, you know, she would do things like she'd have barbecues set up down on the lawn so you could bring your own meat and have your own barbecue. And I remember there was always a trampoline there. And so every other weekend, there'd be an injury or two from some kid launching off off the trampoline. So all of these things were, um, I guess, part of the the naivety of, of running an, an early sort of um, farm hospitality operation. But um, yeah, it's, uh, she, she was great at what she did and, and certainly very driven. She worked seven days a week and long hours. So yeah. Wow, that's so awesome. I mean, you come from amazing stock. I mean, you know, she she worked for quite some time and, you know, was she amazed by just, you know, how Mornington flourished? I mean, now it is a mecca for amazing food and wine. I think so. Yeah, look, I think that um, it's interesting. She she did a sort of a scrapbook um, uh, hobby where she would, every time there was an article on any of the Mornington Peninsula producers, she would actually cut them out and, and she scrapbooked them. And it's interesting, when she passed, we actually had them uh, scanned and bound into a really nice book. And, and these things, this goes right back to the very early 80s. And it's this amazing um, I guess, document which um, sort of follows the progression of the Mornington Peninsula, not just in relation to wine, but it's food culture as well. And and, um, and now you look around and, you know, as a region, I think we have four or five chef-hatted restaurants and they're all on wineries and, and it's just such mm. a tribute. And I think that it just highlights that link between quality food and quality wine and and um and yeah i think that it's it's really a testament to um people like her uh, and there were many more who who really um yes paved the way in many ways i'm so glad to hear that you you said about binding and and scanning some of those photos because that cl- that the little you know clip outs that she had would yeah tell an amazing story that often i'm sure lots of people would like to know about when you know they're they're in the region um yeah, I'm, I'm sad that I never got to meet her because she sounds awesome. Now, I want to know a little bit about you come back to the family farm, you know, you're now head of everything. How do you go about um, developing a winery and, and making it unique against other wineries in the region? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting concept because in many ways we are – bound, I feel, by the common goal of, in many ways, producing Mornington Peninsula Pinot Noir primarily. You know, that's um, the strive to make great Pinot is is what every producer pretty much in the region has in common. So, differentiating yourself can be a challenge. Um, you know, I think we have a lot of things working in our favour, you know, not that we not that we do sort of rise above. I think that it's a very collaborative region. But, um, but some of the things that we like to, I guess, put forward as part of our offering are, are our legacy. So, certainly, you know, we are multi-generational and, and that we do have that sort of, it's not a, this is a, a passion project. This is not just a business, you know, this is not, corporatized it's it's a family working with you know other people as well but to um to make wine um and and i think um the other thing that i think we really do really well and we do it 
out of obligation and necessity is um, uh, is our sustainability um, processes, uh, both in the vineyard but right through the business as well. And um, <coughs> excuse me, I think that they are. You know, um, we we really have, I guess, forged a path in many ways in the region in relation to those processes. Um, many of which now are becoming sort of uh, ingrained in viticulture in general, which is great. But um, but for us, they're they're certainly uh, at the forefront of what we do. And when did you start to kind of switch over to more sustainable viticultural practices, and and what made you do so? Um, so we we did it. Um, probably back around sort of 16 years ago now. And we did it because we, we really had no choice. Um, so, because my parents had been um, growing the, they'd had the vineyard here for say 25 years at the time, and they'd been growing the grapes and uh, conventionally. And by that, I mean, you know, as most farmers or viticulturalists did at the time, if there was a problem, there was a chemical to fix it. So, um uh, so, you know, if there was a weed, you'd spray it with a glyphosate. If there was a fungus, you'd use a fungicide and so on and so forth. And what they didn't realise at the time, despite my dad's um, uh, horticultural background, but there was no understanding of the cumulative effects of these chemicals, in particular in the soil. And so, over time, these uh, chemical residues have been building up and killing out all of the, um, all of the nutrients in our soil and all of the um, biological um, uh, I guess, uh, beneficial um, uh, sort of life in the soil. And um, and so if you went into the vineyard 15, 16 years ago and dug up a clot of dirt, it would almost be like chalk. And um, so it would just break up and disintegrate in your hands. So we set about at the time trying to understand what we'd been doing wrong and that, obviously that involved then eliminating these synthetic chemicals. And so that was part of the process, but that just reset the bar to where we were at the time. So then we decided, okay, well, we need to reinvest in our soils to bring them back to, the, to life and back to health. And that's how we, I guess, we embarked on the process of, of um, you know, investing in the soils through composting and intro cropping and everything else that we do now, um, which are, are sort of endemic in our viticultural processes. Mm. And you've, won some amazing awards just for your dedication to that. Will you go down an organic certified path or a biodynamic path or are you more on that loot resonate kind of, you know, um, approach to you will do what you have to do um, but, you know, obviously striving to be as um, natural as possible in, in, the, in the vineyard? Yeah, that's a really that's a really sort of pertinent question because for a long time I've resisted um, seeking certification. We're not biodynamic and we don't practice biodynamics, although I do feel that some of the, um, the, the lunar cycles do impact certain processes, but I, um, I feel that, you know, um, the, a lot of the biodynamic processes themselves aren't really for us. Uh, organics are at the heart of what we do, um, although for organic viticulture and organic farming, for my liking, you can use too much copper. Um, and copper is a bit of an antidote to a lot of other, um, I guess, uh, things that you're trying to substitute. So, and copper can build up and, and is not very beneficial to soil. Um, so, in many ways, um, I guess we, we are sort of uh, heading down that organic route. But the problem that I historically have identified is I don't want to be known for making organic wine. I want to be known for making good Pinot Noir and good Chardonnay. And I think that people can historically people can sometimes get confused that what you're selling is the process not the product 
and mm. that's not what I'm looking to achieve. But I feel that might be changing now and I also feel that it's going to be increasingly important to have third-party validation that what you're doing is true and correct. So it's not okay just to say, hey, you know, our wines are good and we are um, growing soil, you know, we, we have a focus on soil health and we're sustainable and we're effectively organic and then, but then anyone can say that. So that's why also I'm conscious of the Sustainable Wine Growing Australia certification. I think mm. that that's probably something that we'll look towards in the coming year or two um, because, again, I think that having that, you know, um, ready-to-go certification, we tick the, tick, tick the boxes, um, here's the proof sort of thing is certainly worthwhile considering. And down the track, that might include organics. But, yeah, I think organics has a slightly different perception in Australia to what it does perhaps in Europe at the moment. Uh, but that is evolving. Yeah, you, you answered that really well. And, and the reason I asked too is because it's very clear that uh, – your your passion and dedication to really looking after the health of your site and you know it better than anybody else. So I, I trust in that whatever decisions you're making, it's for the right reasons. And I agree with you. Sometimes um, we're seeing all these kind of, you know, trending words at the moment and some of them sometimes don't mean a whole lot when people talk about sustainability or they talk about perhaps organics and you wonder really like, you know, have they re- are they really just kind of using it as a keyword to sell their wine? And and so I, I think you answered that really well. Um, and I and I'm excited to see what you do. But it, in terms of you know everything right now, your you know your commitment to soil health, recycled waters, and waste, you guys are really just um, you know making sure that you leave the place better for the next generations, and that's so impressive. Yeah, I, I think, and, and that is the key, you know, it, it almost sounds a bit cliched to put it this way, but we do try and take the view that we're custodians, not owners, and and, and that's never more clear than being a second generation, but also having children myself. Um, you know, I, I think that it's this is not a sort of smash and grab operation. This is this is hopefully sustainable in every sense of the word, and and um, and I, I hope we're we're doing that for the next generation and beyond. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, talking about Pinot Noir, I do want to talk about Pinot Noir because I absolutely adore Mornington Pinot Noir and I drink more Pinot Noir than anything else in the world and uh, the breadth of styles in Mornington but also the level of flavour. And, and it's a question I was often asked in restaurants, why is Mornington Peninsula Pinot Noir so good? So rather than me talk about that, I'm just going to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting and, and firstly I'd say that we are an extremely collaborative bunch of wine producers here and I, I think we all know that we will have better results if we work together rather than against each other and so there's a great sharing of information and and understanding but there also there's also a great sharing of um i guess um the marketing you know part of it and i think that's important um you know we need to be able to put put that out there and, and have a consistent voice or be nuanced with our own individual um uh, businesses, but uh, and labels, but but I think together we we are much stronger. But the other thing that I think you have to recognise about the Mornington Peninsula is the average vineyard size is only five acres, and so this is not a corporatized large production. People are not coming to the Mornington Peninsula to grow grapes 
for the financial uh, benefit. Um, uh, there's some strong businesses here, don't get me wrong. We're not here to lose money, but I feel that the passion has to be there first and foremost. Um, and so, if you look at it, there, there, I think to my mind, there are no longer any more sort of corporate or, or um, you know, uh, listed or, or um, large owned uh, wineries on the Mornington Peninsula, they're all back in family hands. Uh, when Stonia's uh, was bought recently um, and, and Tagallant has been bought back as well. And, <coughs> excuse me, I feel that that in itself is a testament to the motives that people have when, when growing grapes in our region. They are driven to make quality wine. And, of course, half the plantings on the Mornington Peninsula are Pinot Noir. And so, yeah, this is where we really hang our hats. So that's why I think we've progressed so much, in particular in the last, I would say, sort of 15 or 20 years, the quality of Mornington Peninsula wine has gone through the roof, in particular Pinot Noir, because we, we have vine age now, we're, we understand what we're doing, we understand the importance of keeping our crop levels under control, um, we know which sites work well, we know which clones work well within the region, and the passion is here too, and I think that it's, it's that formidable combination that's getting great results. Yeah, it's, the results are amazing. I remember when I first um, popped down to the Mornington and it was actually for... Um, Pinot celebration, um, which is amazing um, event, and and I remember wondering about just the sheer um, pigment in some of the the Pinot Noir, which I'm seeing change a lot. Is that mostly due to clones? Because some of the kind of the color of Mornington, you could almost uh, maybe five years ago, you could almost pick it by based on the color. Where we're seeing that change so much now, and all I could put that down to was was clone clonal. You know, diversity. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. Colour, I mean, as, as I'm sure you appreciate, is, is when we're producing Pinot. It's not the first thing that we're striving for. Mm. Colour really becomes a byproduct of the other, uh, the depth of colour in many ways becomes a, a byproduct of the other processes. And, and I think as every good Pinot Noir consumer knows, um, you don't write off a, a, a Pinot by looking at the colour and saying, oh, that's not going to be a good wine because it's not dark and rich and sort of ruby in, in colour. Um, so there's a lot of light Pinots out there that are delicious. Um, but I feel um, then you know, I think that with everything that we're doing in this region, you do get that concentration on every level. Mm. So, you know, with that vine age, with that um, better clonal mix, um, you know, and and I think with the the work that most producers are doing here with their soils and and their their vine health, um, they do result in in higher quality fruit, which is quite often equates to more concentrated fruit. You know, keeping cropping levels down as well, and that as a result will often result in um, uh, in, in in darker coloured wines. So yeah, I think there is a bit of a change, but it's also so vintage. Um, uh, specific as well. You know, if you look at um, like 2021 was a bit lighter in colour, but certainly the, the Pinots from 2022 and, and what we're seeing now in 2023 are, are much darker and, and more complex wines. Um, so, yeah, it can, can still vary. Mm. Well, yeah, now these days, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see what perhaps I, I did um, off the the, the first kind of glance, there's just so much diversity. Um, your Pinot Noir in particular is so multifaceted, um, has lovely structure, and it's a wine that I just really would encourage people to age as well. I mean, I think it is a Pinot that will just, you know, really 
do yourself a reward by giving it some time in the cellar. I mean, of course, drinking right now, absolutely, but it, it's a wine that is only going to continue to just get better and better. Yeah, I, I feel um, it's it's interesting. So I, I think you're you're referring to the Cri de Coeur Pinot there, and um, and so that's a, a a range of wines that we only introduced about um, when was like the Pinot. The first time we made the Pinot was in 2012, and. We've been making this is from what are now forty year old Pinot vines um, across the board, and so we, I think, in many ways, that wine was was we brought that in as an opportunity to showcase the work that we'd been doing with the fruit and the the high quality fruit that we were getting, and so of course. As part of that, you know, where, and again, this sounds cliche, but we're doing all of the work in the vineyard and and less and less work in the winery. And in that, I'm saying, you know, we have, you know, great flavour sort of coming into the to the wine into the into the grapes. We've got great um, acid balance at the time of harvest. We're retaining acids a lot better. Um, the, the the tannin structure is a lot better. But the other important aspect is that our stalk lignification, the ripeness and the and the flavours that we're getting in our stalks in the stems, uh, is is far better as well. So we're using a high proportion of whole bunches in the fermentation rather than destemming the the fruit, um, and that results in a, a, in my view a very complex. Um, wine because you're getting a, a whole different array of tannin structures, um, many sort of fine grain tannins that really do add, add to the complexity of the Pinot. And if you don't have healthy, uh, high quality fruit and you use whole bunch, the wine will look green and stalky and and you know n- not not in a good place. And and I feel that it's only since we've been doing what we've been doing that we've been able to actually use that stalk, which has given that opportunity to make a more complex Pinot. And yes, I definitely agree that that, that makes that structure makes the Pinots far more age worthy. So absolutely, and the acid uh, retention there as well. So yeah. Mm, it's a, it's a- such a beautiful wine that range is amazing but in saying that i love and i and i've worked with quite a few of your different wines right from the the oggy um kind of more experimental ranges and and right through to to the top line and and at each level there's so much interest there it's almost like visiting multi-wineries because you can just get lost in the different levels of of all the wines that you make um but i desperately have to talk about a little bit more of the critical range so i'm so sorry that i'm focusing on that but uh they're so exciting wines and i i can't not ask some of these questions i actually took the critical um bottle of Sauvignon uh, with me last night as I went to Key Restaurant uh, for a dinner and I handed it over to the the wine team there and I said, this is, if not one of the greatest drinks that Australia makes. And I really, truly believe that. And I'm so excited for them to try it um, if they haven't already. So tell me a little bit about Sauvignon and its kind of history in Australia. Uh, okay. Well, firstly, that's very kind of you to say, Shante. I'm, I'm delighted you you think so highly of the wine. It's um, it's it's uh, it's been quite a ride, but to have that feedback is just uh, music to my ears. Thank you. Um, yeah. So so Sauvignon, um, and I'll try and cre- keep this succinct because it's quite a long story. But um, it's it, to, to, from our perspective, it's the greatest mistake that's happened uh, to our business and, and certainly in my winemaking career. And by that, I mean when we planted. 
um, what we now have as Savignon. We actually was we were originally planting what we thought to be Albariño. Um, so Albariño being the the Spanish uh, white variety from the Rio Spacious region uh, in in the northwest of Spain, and because um, we have a range of wines called Los Hermanos, which are Spanish varieties, and so we thought we'll grow some Albariño. So we grafted half an acre of our Chardonnay over to uh, what we thought was Albariño, grew it. Um, and made it for two or three years. And then I had a phone call out of the blue from Max Allen um, saying, oh, have you heard about this um, Albariño, um, I guess, identity crisis? And um, I hadn't, and he explained it all to me. But basically what happened was there was a, a, a French ampelographer, and an ampelographer is someone who can identify uh, a plant, in this instance, grapevines, by looking at the shape of their leaves and the, the, the bunches. And he went into an Albariño vineyard in South Australia and he said, lovely vineyard but unfortunately that's not Albariño, that's Savignon. Um, and, uh, and so uh, effectively what had happened was all of the plantings of Albariño at the time, and this is going back about 10 years, um, had come from the same uh, fruit source. Um, so they'd come from the same... Um, um, basically eight cuttings that were brought into Australia from Spain in, in 1980. And unfortunately, the wrong cuttings were brought in at the time and they were all Savignon, uh, not Albariño. And so I think at the time there's about 150 acres planted to this, what was Albariño, but was actually Savignon around Australia. And most people pulled them out because they didn't, you know, what is Savignon? Who, no, no one knows what it is. Is it Savignon Blanc? No, it's not. What's Where's the Jura region? What's all this about? <laughs> but of course, it turned out, um, and we were lucky because uh, Matt Campbell, who's our assistant winemaker here, he'd actually been to the Jura and was quite familiar with some of the wines of, of Vin Jaune, which means yellow wine, uh, and uh, and said, oh, this is a great opportunity. And um, and yeah, so from, from there, we started started to, I guess, change our mindset. We, we kept one barrel back and then we kept um, multiple barrels back and started to develop the floor and, and, and really start to, to change our mindset. Um, so, Savignon, for the uninitiated, um, and, and there's certainly uh, you have good reason to be uninitiated because it's, it's such a, an unheard of style and, and, uh, and variety, but Savignon, when made in the Jura region in, in, uh, in France, they use it to produce a wine called Vin Jaune, which the direct translation is yellow wine. And basically, the winemaking process that we have uh, embarked on, which they, um, uh, I guess, own or created is to age the wine under a floor yeast in barrel for six years. We don't quite do six years, we do about four years. So, no, no sulfur, no topping of the barrel, just letting that sort of floor yeast, the yeast film that grows on top of the wine, protect the wine from excessive oxidation, but it also adds this beautiful sort of nutty, creamy, sort of curry leaf, umami sort of character to the wine. Um, Savignon naturally has great acidity, um, so you, you still keep a degree of freshness. Um, so then we basically wait until it's developed this really lovely nutty character. It is a bit of Russian roulette. You get all sorts of things potentially growing, some volatile acidity, you can get Britannomyces. We've we've lost barrels. I, I'm happy to admit that. Um, but mm. uh, but yeah, those that w- those that sort of stand the test of time are just amazing. You know, you've just got such a complex wine at the end of it, which is um, yeah, and it just ages so beautifully as well. So yeah. Well, the yellow wine that you produce is is just sensational. It's unlike um, any other drink, and that's why I call it a drink because it's just. It's at such top level in quality um, that I that I've seen, and that includes lots of Vangons that I, I've tried from France as well. Um, what a happy accident, and how amazing to have somebody that kind of knew of um, 
of that variety and how to work it that was, you know, working with you at the time. Uh, what was your first taste of a yellow wine like? Did you go and purchase some bottles so that you could understand the process? I mean, what were your first impressions when you tasted it? Yeah, well, that was it was quite quite interesting. So Matt, again, um, we um, was a group of friends, um, Matt and his wife, and and uh, and a few others. We went on a soon after this revelation had come out. Um, we went on a, a trip down to uh, Dunkeld, the Royal Mail Hotel, and we all rented a house down there and had a really nice meal, and and uh, which was fantastic. But Matt seized the opportunity, and he brought down. And I can't. It might have been a Stefan Tissot. Um, uh, Vangin and uh, and he brought this big uh, clump of Comte cheese down and just when we were sort of um, you know having a drink before ready, ready to go out to the Royal Mail he just plonked both of them on the table and was like right let's have this and I'm just like holy shit what is this like this is just firstly I'm like because my natural instincts as a winemaker, I'm like, well, this is oxidised and this has, you know, this going on, that going on. But once you look through those characters and you start developing, it's just so, they're almost addictive. Like you can just see such incredible, um, you know, subtleties in a wine um, that is just so age-worthy and, and incredible that, yeah, that was, I guess, a, a, a changing moment for me. And, and so from then I've sort of been collecting and enjoying Van Jeune and really trying to, track others around Australia that are working with this style and this variety. And, yeah, I think it's just so, so much fun. Uh, tiny production for us because it is it is such a, um, yeah, small area that we have and it's, yeah, it's, it's such a, a laboured process, but um, but it's good fun nonetheless. And it, and it is a laboured process and it certainly is not a wine for everybody. I mean, that's, that's kind of style is just not, you know, like I say, it, it's one of the greatest Australian drinks that, is produced, but I wouldn't say to everyone, you know, you have to drink this wine, you have to love it because I, you know, it's not going to be for everyone's particular palates, but it's undeniable just in terms of the flavor spectrum that you get and how long it lasts on the palate. You, you can have a sip and then, you know, half an hour later, you can still taste different nuances. It's amazing, but they also age almost indefinitely as well. And then what, because you have such small production, are you putting some aside for your, you know, at least for yourselves for later down the track? Yeah. Yep, we are. So, each year we'll, we'll make, um, we make, like it might end up being anywhere from three to five barrels. Um, and of course, they're ullage barrels. So, if a barrel is normally 220 litres, by then you might have about 180, 190 litres that you're getting out. So, we, it's pretty small, the production that we, we do produce. But I, I have, and fortunately, we, we, for whatever reason, had the foresight at the time to do it. We, we going back to the first vintage we made one in 2011, we've kept um, around about 10 dozen of every wine uh, aside and um, and I um, you know, I've done a couple of tastings where we've had a retrospective tasting and yeah always really enjoyed that process to be able to look back but the wines just they really because they're so, they're sort of pre-oxidized mm. so they're so stable they they just you know if anything they sort of can look fresher the older that they get um, and some of those ox oxidized characters can swing back and, and become less oxidative in many ways it's quite a curious um, I, I can't understand the science or explain the science or understand it um what's that's going on but they do become very um yeah uh, interesting wines over time and they they develop but they don't age necessarily they just keep keep evolving 
Yeah, incredible. And I'm so glad that you've committed to put, even with such a small production, you've put some aside because I think the oldest uh, wine that I've ever tasted that's transformed me has been like a Chateau Chalon or something like that from the 40s that I I, I was completely speechless, which is not me very often because I'm a bit of a chatterbox. So, yeah, just incredible. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I you know, it, it's a hard thing, I imagine, when you make such little of it. And I did think, gosh, don't harp on too much about it because then everybody's going to want some and then you'll never, ever get to get a bottle because it's pretty hard to get your hands on a bottle these days. So, uh, I, yeah, I was at odds to think, should I should I talk about it or not? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I liked it. That, that it gets out there. You know, we, we try not to sell too much through our sort of cellar door or our, our wine club and I like to, to go out and so we make sure that all our distributors get an allocation and, and we get it out there because it's, it's important for me that people get the chance to taste it. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's not, it's not about... It's not about – I mean, it's not a good earner, that's for sure, because by the time you have all of the allergies, the barrels that we lose, all that sort of stuff. So, it's not a it's not a, a business sort of proposition necessarily, but it's um, – but the thing is, you know, I love it when a sommelier says, oh, if I can get a six-pack, I'll, I'll put it on pour and, 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 I'll, and I'll do it through Corvin or whatever because I'm like, great, that gives, you know, however many more people a chance to have a taste and it's – yeah, it's fantastic. So, Yeah. So cool. And then tell me a little bit also about the Makvan because that, again, is not um, language that perhaps a lot of Australians or, or, or wine drinkers would know and you make an amazing Makvan. That is, to me, the ultimate way if I was going to have something at the end of a meal, um, not that it needs to be at the end, but if I was going to finish off a beautiful meal, that for me is something I could just sit, you know, this might be controversial, but the sauternes, forget it. I want to sit and have a little makvan at the end of my meal. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, look, and I, I agree. I just love makvan. I think it's um, uh, so makvan effectively, and and we started doing this as a as a again a little passion project. Um, because I, I started tasting some of these McVan wines. I'm like, well, you know, we've got the opportunity. Why don't we just make a little bit? So each year we produce one barrel, um, so one one barrique, so about 220 litres. And effectively what the process involves is taking some floor-aged uh, Sauvignon, so taking a portion, maybe 100 litres of our, um, say, our 2018 floor-aged Sauvignon, and then we blend that in equal amounts with current vintage grape juice uh, from the Sauvignon grape harvest. So once we pick the grapes, we, we press them out. Before we start the ferment, we take, a, again, about 100 litres and we blend those two components together. So you're getting the sort of all of the rich, nutty, complex, oxidised characters from the aged Sauvignon. You're getting the fresh, uh, you know, acid and liveliness from the grape juice, but of course you're getting that sugar as well, so that's the sweet component. And then what we do is we fortify that by adding grape spirit. Um, so now fortification by name alone, as, as most people would know, fortification is, is something that they used to do to certain wines to prevent any further fermentation or it's spoiling or anything like that. So what you do when you add that spirit and take it up to 17% alcohol is you prevent any further fermentation from kicking off so that the the, the wine will stay sweet and then you've got that sort of rich complex part from the uh, from the the, um, the aged Sauvignon and then we put it back to barrel for about a year uh, and then we bottle it and it just becomes this sort of really sort of, again, sort of nutty but it's fresh and it's rich and it's complex and it's raisined and it's, yeah, it's quite amazing stuff. So, um, yeah, very small production but really enjoyable, yeah. 
I'm so glad that you have the patience and the foresight to, to make wines like this. Like you said, that really at the end of the day, you know, don't get your bottom line, you know, you know, elevated probably. Um, but it's a real commitment to how much you love um, the curios and you see that right through your whole portfolio, The um, just the interest in trying new things um, but also steeped in tradition and I and I think you really see the wonder of of somebody that loves the wine world throughout all of your wines and um, you really go on a journey when you taste any, any of your wines so um, I'm such a big fan I absolutely adore them and, and I'm so glad thank you for for making them year after year. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. It's, it's a, a definitely passion project and, and I certainly can't take the credit for, for everything we do. It's a great team that we have here at Crittenden. But, um, but yeah, I, I love getting that feedback. It's, it's nice to hear that they're enjoyed out there. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. You're so welcome. So, I want to find out a little bit more about your palate. Rollo, if you could only have three drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So three drinks for the rest of my life. Well, I mean, do I have to be quite specific here or is this? uh, um, (laughs) The more, no, whatever you like. (laughs) I won't hold you over. Uh, Well, look, I, I, I mean, like many people in in the, the food and beverage industry, I love a Negroni. Um, I'm sure you get that <laughs> quite often if you ask this question. But um, yeah, and, and a Negroni to uh, to yeah, sort of start a meal or uh, yeah, or, or or finish the day. Um, so yeah, always or finish the night uh, is always a good way to have a, a Negroni too. But yeah, so big big fan of of, of Negronis. Um, and then what else would I? Oh, look, I, I just love Nebbiolo as a variety, and I, and I feel mm. like for a while there we were actually making Nebbiolo, and we were taking fruit from King Valley, and you know, look, it was it was a wine. Well, we made some lovely Nebbiolos, but they always looked like Australian Nebbiolos. But having spent time working in in Barolo, and and you know, um, just the absolute love that I have for Barolo and Barbaresco, and I feel like it's you know, there's been some excellent Australian Nebbiolos produced, and that there are, but I feel. That that is a little bit elusive for me still. You know, I feel we're making amazing pinots in Australia, uh, world class pinots, but I think Nebbiolo, for whatever reason, still hasn't been able to break out of out of the uh, the Piedmont region. And and I think that uh, as a result, um, you know, that's just a, a a wine that I just love to drink when I can justify the the expense and and, and find some good food and some good friends to enjoy them with. So um, yeah, I guess and. And, you know, to that end, and it, it always has to come back to wine, but just Pinot Noir, of course, like um, in general. And, you know, I think there's so many great examples. And I, it's interesting, and again, could be a cost thing, but I don't drink much Burgundy. Um, I drink a lot of Australian mm-hmm. Pinot. Like I just think we're just doing mm-hmm. such a great job in Australia, you know. I mean, if you want to go high end, just the purity of the Bindi Pinots coming out of, of Macedon. But um, beyond that, you know, the complexity of, of um, you know, other other regions and, and, of course, here on the Mornington Peninsula, um, it's just some world-class Pinot. So, I think uh, two, two wines uh, and, and, of course, a Negroni. Uh, that's what you're going to get for your three <laughs> drinks that I, that I, I, I would uh, hang my head on. I love that. I'm, I'm, I'd be disappointed if you didn't say Pinot Noir, but uh, it's always nice just to hear, you know, you know, I was always curious when winemakers come in what they would choose 
kind of as their first drink, you know, and we'd always, of course, offer champagne in a restaurant. But uh, just, it just it fascinated me to see what does, you know, when somebody that drinks wine all the time, what do they just feel like when they first sit down? They're like, oh, you know, most of the time they'll say something like, I'd murder a Negroni or, <laughs> you know, double gin and tonic for me, whatever it may be. But it it's always interesting to, to have a little bit of insight into what makes you tick as well. But, well, it's been like totally inspiring. Uh, like I said, I, I couldn't be a bigger fan of, of of the wines that you do and the way that you look after your very special place down in Mornington. Thank you very much for spending um, some time with me. I've thoroughly loved uh, having this chat with you. As have I, Shante. It's been, uh, yeah, absolutely uh, uh, a fantastic experience and uh, thanks very much for listening. I appreciate the, the conversation. It's been great. Thanks so much. Cheers to you. Thank you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.